the title of today's sermon is The Surprise of Grace. This is part two. So last week, uh, we started it. We went through two of Jesus' parables. We're doing the third parable today. And today we're going to hear about the invitation to grace. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my livestock. They're all butchered up, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went on their own way, one to his own farm, one to his own business. And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and even killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers, and he set their cities on fire. Then he said to the slaves, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. The slaves went out into the streets. They gathered together all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to overlook the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in the wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. The king then said said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. This is the word of God. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Today, God, we're we're excited about you and your presence. We're excited about your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. And so we pray today, God, that you would teach, that you would explain, that you would make application of your word to, to our hearts. God, we submit ourselves now to your instruction. We love you, God. I pray that you would Show us the surprise of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are uh, back in the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, this is the day after Jesus went into the temple and overthrew or threw over the money changers' tables. This is probably only about three days since Jesus entered Jerusalem. So in like American church preaching schedule time. It's been, you know, a month and a half since Jesus entered uh, Jerusalem. But in, in the biblical time, this is only day three. This is the day after flipping over the money and changing table. This is Passover season as well. So in Jerusalem, it would have just been wall-to-wall humans, just packed with people. The temple would have been crazy. And so it's in this context that Jesus is in the temple once again. He's teaching. And as we, we looked at last week, he's confronted by the religious leaders And they want to know, what authority do you have to come in here and teach these things? What authority do you have to say the things that you're saying, to to claim the things that you're saying? See, they didn't understand what had happened the day before. When Jesus came in and threw over the money changers table to demonstrate that God's grace is for everybody. That God's love and God's invitation to grace is to go out to all people. That there's not to be monetary restrictions or social restrictions put on the grace of God. The the high priests and and the religious leaders... They missed that. They didn't get it. Last week, in, in last week's sermon, we, we heard Jesus telling them parables, and we see that these leaders were surprised once again by the grace of God, that God's grace goes out to all people. And so we looked at two parables last week, and um, 
we saw the scandal of God's grace. And what I mean by that is we saw that God's grace goes further than we might think. Certainly it was scandalous to those religious leaders on that day. Because Jesus said, remember, he goes, the prostitutes and the tax collectors will enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, the religious leaders would have been like, what, the what are you even saying, right? It, that's scandalous to talk about the grace of God in those terms. We looked at that last week. We also saw the cost of God's grace, right? That God's grace, while a free gift for us, cost God the sacrifice of his son on the cross. We also looked at the fruit of God's grace, that God's kingdom is not just a kingdom of forgiven people. God's kingdom is also a kingdom of fruit-bearing people. Remember, he told the religious leaders that this kingdom is going to be taken from you, and it's going to be given to a people who bear its fruit. And so here in this third parable, we're going to be looking at today this invitation to grace. This is an invitation that we see this king sends out to everybody. In verse 2, Jesus starts off by saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, this is a royal wedding. And um, I thought about giving a picture analogy of, you know, like what a British royal wedding would look like with William and Kate. But I don't care about that. I didn't watch that and don't know anything about that. So what we do know is this is the wealthiest family in the nation throwing the most extravagant banquet. Uh, anyone would have wanted to be there. Anyone would have wanted to be seen there. Uh, you would have had access to the most influential people in the whole kingdom, just being able to kind of rub shoulders with them. It would have been interesting, to say the least. It probably would have been pretty awesome. Amazing food, entertainment. And so here's this king, extends the invitation. And initially, he would have extended an invitation out to the people that you'd expect, kind of the movers and the shakers, the people that maybe he knew personally, or the people that held some kind of a political place or a place of power or influence in culture. All the right people are invited, and all the right people, we see in this story, they refuse to come. The king gets turned down. Can you imagine getting, getting turned down? Uh, but that's what happened. People just didn't show up. They didn't want to come. And so that's the picture we see here. The king throws this massive party. Nobody comes. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see the king commanding his servants. He says, go therefore to the main highways. And as many as you find there, basically saying, anybody you see, invite them to the wedding feast. Verse 10, he says, those slaves went out into the streets. They gathered together all that they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now, what a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. That God sends this invitation out, inviting the rightful connected people at first, right? The chosen people. Uh, and this is kind of analogous to what we see all through the Old Testament. God sending the prophets and calling the people back to himself over and over again. And then finally God gets to the point where he sends his own son. And these religious leaders he's confronting here, they're about to kill his son in just a couple of days. If going back to the biblical narrative... But to hop back into our story now, he sends his son, he's killed, and then so God says, my invitation goes out to all people. Everybody's invited. Go fill this hall with people. It's a beautiful picture of God's kingdom. His invitation going out to the main streets, all are invited. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the broken, the lame, the blind, the homeless. There was no barrier. There was no restrictions. He says, bring them all in, everyone. They're all brought to this royal wedding feast. It's a beautiful picture, an amazing picture of how God lavishes his grace, this gracious invitation to all people. And one thing we see in this parable 
We saw a little bit of it last week, but this week we see it really sharply. Is this idea of uh, judgment. Uh, when the initial invitees reject the invitation, uh, the king becomes angry, right? Now, they killed his servants, right, when they were just trying to get them to come to a party. So it's understandable why he's angry, but he, he, he becomes angry. He sends in his troops. He banishes them, it says. It's a picture of the constant tension we see throughout the Bible. We see that the persistence of God's grace is constantly met with the resistance of our pride. That God's grace and God's invitation to grace is consistently met with this resistance of our own pride, of our own ideas that I don't need it. It's one of, the, one of the greatest enemies of grace is the idea that we don't need it, isn't it? And see, our culture resists the idea that anyone could come under the judgment of anyone else. In our modern culture, in our, you know, we have this delicate sensitivities to judgment, right? We hear it all the time, don't judge me. Why are you judging her? What gives you the right to judge? And our, our society even gets like pseudo-biblical, and they'll say things like, you know, judge not, or you're going to be judged yourself, right? Not even understanding uh, what that means. Our culture doesn't have a biblical perspective on judgment. Why? Because we don't understand what right and wrong is. We think that people are inherently good as a culture, or at least mostly good, or at least neutral culture would say. There's some people that are super good and some people that aren't quite as good, but nobody deserves to be judged by others. But see, the Bible is clear that apart from God, humanity is very and only bad. This is pretty heavy, but it's vital for us to understand in this context. We have to see our need for a Savior or we'll never submit ourselves to the saving grace of God. If we don't see our need for a Savior, why would we submit ourselves to being saved, right? We'll never value the good news until we truthfully see the bad news. And so we look to God's word for us in these matters. Um, I have a good friend, and uh, he's, a, he's a preacher. He preaches here locally. And he's got this incredible uh, two-year-old. It's the second cutest two-year-old on the planet right now. And he, he also has a pretty awesome Bible. Um, it might be as awesome as my Bible, but he likes it as much as I like my Bible. Um, it's, it's like he, he reads from it in the morning. It's got big margins. He's written in it. He's been teaching from it for years. I'll go backpacking and I'll bring half of a toothbrush to cut down on my pack weight, but I'll bring this guy right here with me, you know? It's like that kind of a thing. Well, one day, his incredibly cute two-year-old uh, came in contact with his precious Bible, you know, and as she's flipping through, tears out a page accidentally. And, you know, after lecturing his two-year-old on the reverence for God's word, he taped it back in, and he's all good. He's doing well now. But it's okay for us. We understand that a two-year-old would, you know, rip a page of, of the Bible out. But um, as I was thinking about this this last week, I realized that what I have a tendency to do and what we need to be careful is that we don't start ripping pages out of our Bible. Now, none of us would, would rip a page out of the Bible. What I mean by that is we like to look at the passages that talk about grace. We like to look at the passages that talk about the blessings of God, right? The, the, the freeness of the gift, so to speak. But then we overlook or we, we effectually tear out the sections that relate to God's judgment or the sections that relate to obedience or re requiring any sort of a response on our part. You see, these parables, we see that God's grace and God's judgment are intertwined. In fact, they seem inseparable. Our struggle to understand God's judgment, I think, is due to some false assumptions. First of all, we assume, as I mentioned earlier, 
that people are mostly good or they're at least neutral. That's, that's a false assumption. The second reason I think we struggle to understand God's judgment is we have this tendency to assume that God comes in and just arbitrarily and violently judges people. Like he's just this angry God. And see, that's the beauty of taking such a close look at these parables. Because if we look at the God's patience, when we examine God's persistence in this story, and in last week's story especially, yeah, God is extending grace, grace upon grace, sending servants and sending more servants, right? But God is also just, and he's holy, and he alone judges sin. And see, we don't see a picture of a spiteful, angry God in these parables. God has sent servants, Right? We see God's patience in that. We see God's persistence here. God sends more servants. They're rejected. Last week we see God sending his own son, right? And, the ki- and he goes, surely they'll respect my son. And his son is killed. See, God isn't judging people who are basically good people who have never heard about God. God is judging people who have rejected God. And in many cases have rejected God over and over again. See, in our parable today, God is the king who is lavishing his grace on the whole kingdom, on everybody, giving this incredible invitation. But in verse 31, it says, there's some that they just would not come. Invitation after invitation. Personal, personal invitation, right? He sends the invitation out. Then he sends someone out to get an RSVP. Hey, c- come on, you know, Evite's down today. Are you coming or not? I need to get a head count. How, m- how many cows do I need to kill? Okay, and they say No. And then finally, they send another round of servants out. And they're like, hey, the food's ready. The table's, come on, right? It's like they're sweetening the pot like we do. They would not come. This shows us two ways that we reject God. We see it in this story. We either ignore God altogether and do whatever we want, or we rebel against God directly. And both of these are rejections of God. Ignoring God is rejecting God. Because if you remember last week's parable, there's two sons. One that says, no, I won't go work in your vineyard. But then they regret that decision and they eventually go and work. He's the obedient son in that story. Remember that? And then there's the second son that says, yes, I will go work in your vineyard. But then their lifestyle doesn't show that they're committed to it. Their lifestyle doesn't show that that was the decision they made. They say yes, but then they don't go work in the vineyard. Ignoring God is rejecting God. We live our lives saying no to God, essentially. And then rebelling against God outright is what more and more of our culture is doing. We say no to God outright, and then they live a lifestyle that way. See, God's judgment and his grace are interwoven. They're not in opposition to one another. God's radical grace does not mean that there is no judgment from God. In fact, ignoring God's righteous judgment is missing the big biblical storyline of God's holy love. God is holy, and he is able to love us with his holy love. He's able to love us without changing the nature of who he is. God's judgment and his grace are interwoven, not opposed to one another, and God is holy, and God is gracious. See, as we examined last week, God does not save us by ceasing his judgment. God saves us by bearing the penalty of his judgment upon himself in Jesus. See, God is able to righteously judge our sin. But he does that because Jesus bore the burden of our sin on the cross. God judged Jesus for my sin on the cross. The Bible says that God turned, turned away from Jesus on the cross. That Jesus hung there, guilty, 
with, with my sin, guilty only because of our sin. It's this beautiful picture of a holy God pouring out his wrath on a substitute. So we get to see God's grace go out in the form of this generous invitation. But we also see that God's grace, it doesn't just save us. God's grace also transforms us. And we see this in the picture that Jesus paints in this story with this idea of the wedding uh, garment. That the king walks into the feast and he sees a guy uh, not wearing the wedding, wedding garment, right? He, he, the idea here is uh, historically uh, the king probably in this kind of a setting especially would have handed out some kind of a robe or some kind of attire for the attendees to wear. And what, the reason I say it was especially important in this setting is because it would have been distracting to have people from all different uh, financial walks of life and all different kind of castes in life coming together at this meal. You'd have the super wealthy and the influential, and you'd have the beggar that sits on the side of the road. And so the idea of this wedding garment is everybody gets clothed in this beautiful, perfect garment. No one's distracted by the clothing. No one's distracted by the social uh, status of the guests. Everybody gets to focus their full attention on the purpose of the event, which in this case is a royal wedding. And so here's the king. He's overlooking the event, right? And there's some crazy uncle out there in his red Hawaiian shirt. And he's like, what's going on here, right? How did you get in here? How, how, are you, how are you even a part of what's going on? He recognizes this guy has chosen not to adorn himself in the wedding garment. We need to see that everyone else was given and was wearing this garment. And it's a picture of this, this idea that we see throughout the New Testament that when we're saved into the kingdom, we're also given the righteousness of Jesus to wear. The Apostle Paul says that we adorn Christ. We, we put him on like you put a garment on. We see this imagery throughout Scripture. Um, probably one of the most powerful pictures is in Zechariah chapter 3, where you see Joshua, right? Joshua comes before the Lord, and he's in these filthy garments. And the word for garment there literally means rags, like these tattered, soiled, good-only-for-the-garbage kind of rags. And what that, the, the nature of those filthy, soiled, tattered rags, it's meant to represent sin. And he's in the presence of God, and he's in these filthy garments. And what does God do? God removes the stained clothes, and he puts pure white garments on Joshua. And here at the wedding feast, we see a picture of this. We, the true people of God, who are welcome into the house of God, are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. See, when you're saved, you're not just given a blank slate. You're not just forgiven of sin. You're also given this beautiful garment. You're given this beautiful garment to adorn to put on. And we put on Christ. It's a picture of how we're transformed by God's love and by God's grace. Grace changes us. It's meant to change us. And as we walk in this, in this new identity, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And remember what we saw last week. Last week we saw that God's grace is not about God changing his standards, right? Because God doesn't change. God's grace is about God changing his people. See, this is, a surpri- this is one of the surprises of grace, is that grace changes us. Grace produces fruit. This wedding garment represents our new identity in Christ. We're now different from who we once were before. We now have this royal identity that we don't deserve. We now have this spotless garment 
that says something about ourselves that we didn't earn on our own. It's something that God has freely given us, freely lavished this identity in Christ on us. None of us have performed to earn this wedding garment. And the surprise of grace is that we are made brand new people. We no longer live like who we once were. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 3. He says, for you have died I love that. Such strong language. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. See, that, that this invitation to grace is this invitation to change. When we walk this out, the days of our lives, the moments of our lives, as we submit ourselves to this idea that we don't deserve to be adorned in the garments of Christ, right? When our sin is as offensive to us, as it is to God when we sin and we recognize our need to turn from our sin because that, doesn't, that betrays this righteous identity that God has given us. So we walk this out, this grace, as something we walk out in the moments and in the days of our life. And today some people might be thinking, well, I really went into God's kingdom. That sounds like a great insurance plan, right? But I don't really want to change. And this is a popular thing actually in our culture right now. Uh, there's a move, uh, in, even in, in American uh, Christianity, for there to be uh, the, the receipt of grace, this receipt of, of like a promise of eternal life, but there's no change. Why? Because as a culture, we don't think people really need to change. People are mostly good. What we really need is just eternal security, and then we can kind of work everything out on our own as we go through the, the day, in, day in and day out of life. But see, God is the king, Right? And what this is saying, when we say, I want to come into the kingdom of God, but I don't want to change, what we're saying is I want to be in the kingdom and I want to be the king. We don't get to set the terms by which we enter the kingdom. God's the king. God knows what's best for us. God is the one who's changing us. And here's where things get crazy. This is at the very end of this passage. It says God chooses us. God chooses us. But it's, it's interesting as you read this parable and you study it. He chooses us, but only... Only if we present ourselves to be chosen. Look, it says in verse 14, for many are called, right? He sent that invitation out to everybody, right? The, the, the command is, if it's breathing, drag it into the wedding banquet, right? That, that was the, where the bar was set. Get it over here. Many are called, but few are chosen. See, the crazy uncle in the Hawaiian shirt, this wedding crasher guy, he was invited, right? He received the invitation. He was breathing, but he wasn't chosen. So we have to look at this text today and ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying and why is he saying it? See, Jesus is alluding to what we call uh, in our modern sort of perspective on theology, this doctrine of election. And there's a bunch of different places you can go to in the Bible to look at it. But um, I'm going to choose Ephesians 1 because in Ephesians 1, we see kind of this two sides to what Jesus is talking about here. We see God's perspective on this, this idea that God's chosen us, and we see man's perspective, this idea that we've, we've submitted ourselves to be chosen. So Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm not trying to, like, put the whole predestination free will discussion to bed here, okay? Like, I understand it's been going on for a long time, but I'm just trying to be faithful to teach the text that's before us today. So let's, let's be patient here. Let's, let's see what Jesus is saying. 
So the Apostle Paul says these words in Ephesians 1, uh, starting in verse 3. He says, All praise to God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace that he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. I love that passage, right? How many of you guys love that passage? That's like, that's like man, in the dark nights of the soul, in the midst of despair over sin in my life, knowing full well that I'm not worthy of God's love, that I don't deserve God's love, man, I can hear the Father telling me, I chose you. And from a divine perspective, that's exactly what happens. That's God's intention. That's his purpose. That's what he desires to do. But we look at Ephesians just a couple verses later. Ephesians 1, verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this. This is kind of more of a, from man's perspective. It says, when you believed in Christ, say when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. See, these truths about God's choosing us and us responding in faith, they're not at war with one another. God chooses me. I'm able to respond to God. That is an act of grace that we're able to respond. It is an act of grace that we're able to see the cross as something good. We're able to see the cross as something amazing. We're able to see the cross as something that is more important than anything else in this life. That is an act of grace, right? That God gives us the conviction of our sin. That we're able to repent and confess our sins. Why else would we confess our sins unless we saw ourselves as guilty? See, it's an act of grace that God has by the power of the Holy Spirit, convicted us of our sin. It's this beautiful, beautiful interplay of God inviting us and us responding and God leading us and us responding. And man, you know, I don't understand it all, but I tell you, I can't wait for the day when we're at the actual wedding feast, right? The wedding supper of the Lamb. And I get to see Jesus face to face. And I don't care what you believe about predestination or whatever, We're going to be able to sit there with tears in our eyes and say, God, I can't believe that you chose me. No one's going to be sitting at that dinner saying, pretty awesome, I figured out how to get in here, huh? Right? (laughs) This gracious invitation by God to invite us to himself, it humbles us. It glorifies God. So why is Jesus saying this? First of all, Jesus is saying this because he loves the Pharisees and these religious leaders. Right, even though they're being total jerks to him in the temple. But he's, this is an invitation for them to hear that they're invited and that to examine themselves if they would have the humility to do that, if they would have the conviction of the Holy Spirit and respond. Even now, Jesus is helping them see that they're invited. But unfortunately, we know the story. We've read the rest of the book of Matthew. They don't see that, right? And, and they reject the son and they kill the son. They become part of the story that Jesus has just told. You know, the other thing this parable does is it kind of forces us to ask, am I chosen? Uh, What does it mean to be chosen? And people get hung up on that. To be chosen, uh, in this parable, it simply means to come to God on God's terms. See, this guy wasn't chosen because he refused to adorn himself in his own garment. 
This guy chose to stay in an identity that he had uh, crafted for himself. He's like, I want to be in the kingdom, but I kind of want to be the awesome me that everyone knows and loves, right? And, And so he stood out in a room full of people that have adorned themselves in Christ, right? The guy that's tooting his own horn or the guy that's standing on his own merits sticks out like a sore thumb. This guy didn't want to repent and obey God. See, in God's kingdom, this is the equivalent of wanting salvation, but refusing to repent and refusing to obey God. This guy wanted to come to God on his own terms. He didn't want to change. He didn't, maybe didn't see a need to change. This guy wanted the grace of God without the holiness of God. He wanted to know the love of God without the changes required to walk in that love, to walk that love out. See, this guy was trying to sneak into the kingdom on his own terms. And see, some of us today might be asking, am I chosen? This is an important question. Can you know, can you know with any certainty that you're saved? Can we have confidence in this? And one of my favorite passages to share at this point when I'm talking to someone is found in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, one of the main reasons I love this passage is because at this point, the Apostle John is just this super old guy, you know, and how some old people could just get away with calling, you know, like little kids, you know, even though these people are in their 40s and stuff. That's what, the Apostle, that's what the Apostle John's at that stage in life. And he's just writing this with this endearing heart, this letter to this young church that, you know, that he had started and ministered in years before. And he says this, he says, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we're confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. See, the question that we ask ourselves in terms of like, am I saved? Or do I have security in this? And am I chosen of God? It's a simple question. Am I trusting in Christ alone and what he did on the cross? Am I trusting in Christ alone and what he did on the cross? Or am I trusting in my own efforts? Am I trusting in my own merit? Am I trusting in things that I've done? This becomes very complicated to some people. And let's try to take the complexity away. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 6. He said, however, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. I will never reject them. So that means that the people in this room right now who are feeling convicted of their sin and feeling led by the Spirit of God, and we're, we're convicted. There's none of us in here that look at the cross and see our sin in light of the cross, and desire to repent, but can't. Everyone in here that wants to repent, that is feeling a desire to repent, has the ability to repent, right? Jesus says, I'll never reject you. We're able to freely come to God. God's grace finds us wherever we are and invites us to this wedding. God's grace invites us to turn our filthy, tattered robes in, leave them at the door, and he exchanges our filthy robes with this beautiful garment. The beautiful garment isn't given to us because we've performed really, really well. It's because we said, yes, I will come to the wedding, and I will participate as a wedding guest. I'll leave my rags at the door, and I will adorn Christ. God's grace pulls us out of our slavery to sin and gives us the freedom then to obey God. And so what's so beautiful about this wedding feast is in the grand scope and in the grand storyline of Scripture, not only are we invited to this wedding, here's what's crazy, but we're invited to the wedding as the bride. Now that's not in this particular parable, but that's the storyline throughout all of Scripture. God talks about his people as his bride. 
Even though we've committed spiritual adultery, God pursues us. God seeks after us. Isaiah chapter 62, it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. God looks at us the same way a, a bridegroom looks at his bride. He rejoices over her, right? Exulting, finding satisfaction in her. God looks at us and he delights in us. Also, the Bible gives us a picture as children. Those of us who have been given the righteousness of Christ. So in the past two weeks, we've seen four main things about God's grace. Uh, This is kind of a summary of uh, Jesus' parables about God's grace. The first, we saw last week that grace is scandalous. God extends grace to people we would never think would be loved by God. The second thing we saw is that grace is free yet costly. While a free gift for us, grace required the death of Jesus on the cross. The third thing we've seen is that grace changes us. We're brought near to God and we're made brand new in Jesus Christ. That's clear in these parables. The fourth thing is about grace, we've seen that all are invited to receive it. And so last week I mentioned how resistant I was to the idea that a slave trader uh, would be uh, a candidate to receive God's grace. I told you the story of a, a slave trader in the 1700s who's the captain of a slave ship, and a ship is going down in a storm, and he cries out to God for mercy, right? And as I'm reading this in this biography, I'm like, don't do it, Lord, right? Don't do it. I know intuitively that that guy does not deserve mercy. That guy deserves to be punished. He deserves to go down with a ship. That man's name, I told you, is John Newton. God did have mercy on him. He saved, saved him from drowning that night. But more than that, more than that, God invited him to the banquet. God invited him to the wedding, and John Newton said yes. And he showed up. And John Newton took off his filthy rags, and he threw them at the door, and he put Christ on. He confessed his sins, and there were many, many, and they were super obvious. He confessed his sins, and God forgave him. God gave John Newton a new heart. He redeemed him. See, John Newton had to be purchased out of slavery, not because he was a slave to slave as a slave. That didn't make any sense. (laughs) He had to be delivered from the slave trade. You guys are smart enough to figure it out. But he also became a minister in England in the 1700s. And he would go around preaching. And he would go around writing. And he would go around talking about this amazing grace that he had encountered. And he wrote many things. He wrote a bunch of different hymns. And he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And the reason that grace was so amazing to John Newton is because he understood how much of a wretch he was apart from God's grace. Those are his words. And so we're going to read uh, the first couple of uh, verses here. This is Amazing Grace, written in 1779. He says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. See, until you and I understand our own true state apart from God, where we stand before God, when we understand our sin and our wretchedness before a holy God, like, like John Newton declares up here, we, we have to see that we're lost, that we need to be found, right? Until we see that we're blind. He says, I was blind, but now I see. We have to, we have to see our own spiritual blindness, 
See, until we see ourselves as we are apart from God's grace, we will never cherish or respond to God's grace as we need to. We'll either resist and say no, we'll either rebel, or we'll be like, you know, the crazy uncle who try to get in on our own terms. We'll never respond in a way that brings true salvation and true life. God's grace leads us to respond in repentance. We turn from our sin. Like in John Newton's case, he became a completely different man. God's grace leads us to freedom from pride, freedom from people-pleasing. It frees us from shame, identifying with our sins. See, John Newton saw himself clearly apart from God's grace, and he cried out to God. He saw his need for a Savior. God redeemed John Newton, not only forgiving him, but changing him completely. About this radical transformation, Newton once said this. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. It is only by God's grace that I am what I am. Man, what humility. Newton forever recalled and rehearsed and responded to God's grace. For the rest of his life, he would remember it, right? He would rehearse it. He would respond to it. He was walking in the grace of God for the days and the moments of his life. And at the very end of his life, he, he reflected back on many things uh, relating to the slave trade, the horrors that he participated in, uh, the things that he witnessed. And he also reflected back on the love that God had so freely and powerfully given to him. This is an old man as he's dying. He said these words. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Church, may we know that today, that God's grace is sufficient for us. God's kingdom is going to be full of people who once walked in wickedness. Tax collectors, prostitutes, slave traders, self-righteous religionists. How can this be? Just like the religious leaders 2,000 years ago were scratching their heads as Jesus is teaching. How can it be that these people are going to be in the kingdom of God? As we've seen these last two weeks, God's grace is not a matter of God lowering his standards. God's grace is a matter of God transforming his people. Let each of us examine ourselves in light of the cross today. So therefore, in light of the cross, where do we stand? Where do you stand? Are you responding to the invitation to receive God's grace today? Are you responding to the invitation to, to walk in God's grace? And what I mean by that is how, how we see John Newton reflecting on God's grace, re- remembering and realizing our need for a Savior. We can't ever see ourselves apart from that, or, or we'll cease walking in the grace of God. We need to remember that. We need to rehearse God's grace, memorizing Scripture, allowing the Word to wash over us. Are you responding to the invitation to walk in God's grace? Are you moved to respond to this beautiful truth of the cross? This idea and this beautiful truth that Jesus took our sin and our shame upon our himself. That Jesus was judged on my behalf. And today we're invited to repent. We're actually able to exchange our filthy rags, our sin, our best efforts, which are nothing more than filthy rags. God today is inviting us to exchange those for a beautiful robe, a beautiful robe worthy of a wedding banquet. 
Are you choosing to adorn Christ today? And I recognize some of us maybe are struggling, real struggles with sin, but like battling in the trenches, battling with sin, habitual sin. Some of us are terrified. If anyone knew that we actually had a sin problem like this, if God knew that I had a sin problem like this, if my wife knew I had a sin problem like this, if my boss knew I had a sin listen, the most people probably know, maybe not exactly what it is, God definitely knows. So why would we keep walking in shame? Why would we keep walking in a life protecting and defending something that is separating us from this beautiful banquet, this invitation? God is saying today, take that filthy rag off. Confess your sins to me. Come and find forgiveness in what I've done with Jesus on the cross. And then I'm going to give you new life. Jesus didn't stay in the grave, did he? No, he rose to new life, and that's the invitation to the wedding banquet. He's like adorn Christ and walk now in grace. Walk in a new life. You're not stunted by your shame. You're not the product of the bad decisions you've made your whole life. You're not the product of your best efforts, which probably really stink. You're made brand new in Jesus Christ. The cross is your freedom. Your sin and shame is not a problem to God. There's no sin, there's no addiction, there's nothing that would make God say today, I don't love you because you did that. God has been so patient with us. He's kindly leading us to repentance. He's kindly leading us to this place to receive him as our Lord and our King. There might be some here today that haven't submitted themselves to the King, right? You you come into a wedding, but you got this nonchalant attitude, and today God is saying, I'm your King. Come, put the garment on. Come, participate. There's freedom here. I believe everyone here is here today to hear this message because God is wooing us to himself. Allow yourself to be surprised by God's grace. Respond in faith to the gift offered by Jesus. Respond in repentance to turn away from sin that holds you down. Respond in obedience. Put on the garment of Jesus Christ and and walk in his righteousness. But let's... First and foremost, let's respond in worship. Let's give God the glory for the incredible gift of grace. Come to the wedding feast as we worship our Lord today. Amen.